0: You do you. Let TrueGreen do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: Five, four, three, two, one, two, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS. Yes, hi.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major. Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank
2: you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, coming to you for the now ninth month in a row from my dining room because we are on still... Limited movement due to the pandemic and for those of you who are out there who are on the front lines I've said this many many times I will say it again Whether you're a healthcare worker, first responder, working in a grocery store, anywhere that you have to be out at work We are thinking about you, we care about you, we want you to stay as safe as possible And in that regard I stay inside as much as possible because that's what we need to do to get through this Help is on the way, if you remember our show last week it made a ton of news Dr. Anthony Fauci talked about how soon the vaccine would arrive what its prospects are, but the things we have to do to take care of ourselves between now and then. We'll probably not make as much news this week as we made last week, but still a fascinating conversation is dead ahead with David Rubenstein. So if you live in Washington, D.C., you know he's an incredibly important person for a lot of different reasons. But even if you just come to Washington or if you've come here in the past, you have probably seen his philanthropic work all around the great nation's capital that we call Washington, D.C. He is the chairman of the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts chairman of the Smithsonian Institution. He is president of the Economic Club of Washington, D.C. He is also philanthropically donated to the preservation and restoration of the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, and many other things that you see here in Washington, D.C., as well as things around this country. David Rubenstein, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, David, you have a book. You came out this year. I'll show it to the audience right now. It's called How to Lead... It is conversations you've had in various forums uh, over the last few years with prominent people in certainly business, law, entertainment, and the like. And I want to say something to you that you might find a little bit abrasive at first, but it isn't. I was listening to a lecture on uh, great fiction by Walter Mosley, and Walter Mosley said one of the highest compliments he can give to a writer is that your writing is pedestrian, and by that he meant not that it's plain or ordinary or flat, but that every human being is at first pedestrian before they become really interesting. And he said, novel writers have to take pedestrian people and make them interesting, but everyone is pedestrian, everyone is ordinary at first, and then they become something else. First of all, do you agree with that? And second of all, how would you filter that through this book and what you've learned from the people you talk to in this description of what leadership is and how it comes about?
1: Uh, I wouldn't claim that I am, I've am. i written The Origin of Species or Principia Mathematica. Um, so it's pedestrian in the sense that it's relatively easy to read. It's designed for the average person who isn't able to generally hang out with Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, but would like to know what they think about things. And so it's a fairly uh, kind of a friendly conversation I've had with them and other people over the years. Um, I designed it to make sure that people who are young read it if they could and be, be, be inspired to be leaders, because my theory is that society is better off if you have good leaders than have bad leaders. And so I wouldn't say it's a book that is uh, too difficult to read. Um, and it's an unusual kind of book in the sense that it's basically my summaries of what people said. And then I basically have the transcripts of the interviews. And as you know, from reading books, generally people don't write summaries of interviews and transcripts and and make that interesting. But people seem to have liked it so far. And what is it that you
2: conclude, if anything, about the commonalities of people who become leaders and who become super important in their chosen line of work
1: or passion? Well, one, there's luck. Um, People just got lucky in life in some ways. Obviously, Bill Gates is very smart, but if he hadn't done this or hadn't done that, he might be just another high tech executive somewhere. So there's a lot of luck. Secondly, they tend to come from lower middle class or or blue collar backgrounds, not from the Forbes 400 as a general rule of thumb. They tend to be very driven people. They have a vision of what they want to do. They're very persistent. They tend to have, this might surprise some people, a fair amount of humility about them relative to what they've accomplished. Now, every great leader isn't humble. Uh, Alexander the Great wasn't humble, presumably, and Napoleon wasn't humble. But generally, the people today that I've written about have more humility than arrogance, I would say fairly ethical people. They also, I think, uh, want to do something to make the world a little bit better place than they found it. So those are the kind of things they have in common.
2: My wife has a great phrase, which I'd like to run by you, which is life always looks strategic in retrospect. That is to say, everything looks like it was completely ordered and well designed when you tell your story from the position of having become successful. What do you think about that?
1: Of course, uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, And looking back, you can always make what you did to seem a little bit more systematic or reasoned than it was. But of course, a lot of people will in this book and in other cases will say, well, I stumbled here, I stumbled there. Yeah, things worked out, but boy, it was a hell of a way to get there. So uh, my own life is that way. And maybe yours is as well. I made a lot of mistakes. I got lucky later in life. And, and a lot of people in this book did the same thing. There are references. This book
2: came out this year to George Floyd and the conversation it has sparked in this country. Long simmering, but taken on a new flavor for sure, and a sense, uh, a new dynamism. And you mentioned one of the first things that you saw that were common threads of these successful leaders was luck. I don't need to tell you, David, there are those who look at America and say, you know, it's not luck in a certain sort of way. It's institutionalized, systemic preferences that feel lucky but actually aren't. Your thoughts on that?
1: Well, there's no doubt that if you were born, uh, you know, out of wedlock, you're put up for adoption, you're raised in a foster home, you're African-American or Hispanic or some other minority, Uh, you have physical problems as well or mental problems, you're not gonna be treated the same and you're not gonna be as lucky going forward in life as somebody that came from a two-parent family that came from reasonable means. So sure, Um, Thomas Jefferson said that the pursuit of happiness is what we're about and we should have equality, but we really don't have equality. The George Floyd incident to, and death, murder, um, is an incredible situation where despite the enormous amount of things that happened in the 1900s to show the racism in this country, it is surprising that it was that one death that transformed American look at the racism because we did so many things in the, in the Civil Rights Revolution that probably didn't transform things quite as much as just this one killing, which is tra- tragic that it happened but it is amazing how it's been transformative. But there's no doubt, you're right. Um, If you are in the lower income category when you're born and you have a lot of racial, um, I'd say, discrimination against you, it's tougher to rise up. And the problem we have is not just income inequality, it's lack of social mobility. That's what's going away as well. And that
2: lack of social mobility, classism, is not just a problem for people of color. It's now a problem for people who are white in this country, and it is part and parcel, at least in some measure, of the Trump phenomenon. Wouldn't it, would you not agree?
1: There's no doubt that he received, uh, what, 75 million votes or something like that. And those 75 million votes weren't just voting against uh, Joe Biden. They were voting for somebody who represented the past, you could argue, and many of the things that they feel are being taken away. as has been pointed out in the year 2040, this country will be minority majority. In other words, uh, the white uh, people that you and I represent to some extent, we're white, will be a minority of the country's population into the year 2040. And many of those people who are white and many particularly who are not well-educated, don't have good incomes, resent the fact that they see some people doing better than they think those people deserve to do.
2: And yet there are those who would say, if you are an African-American or a Latino in this country and you walk into a bank, you are already at a lesser advantage than someone who walks in who's Caucasian?
1: Well, today, obviously, it's a society which has been tilted towards people who've been the majority. That is true of societies all over the world throughout the time of history. Um, We have been one of the few societies that has recognized that it's really a disadvantage to be a minority and trying to do something about it, but it's imperfect effort. We started with a genetic defect called uh, slavery, and we haven't completely overcome that. Maybe in 100 years we will, but probably in your lifetime and my lifetime, we're not going to eliminate racism in the United States. That is the voice of David Rubenstein.
2: He is our special guest this week. He has a book out that's come out this year, How to Lead. Let me show you you one more time before we go to break. I'm Major Garrett. This is the Takeout. Stay tuned for segment two in just a second.
3: details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cash back really adds up.
0: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome back. David Rubenstein is our special guest. David, I want to continue this conversation about the Trump effect. After the election, you told Forbes magazine the Trump voters aren't going to go anywhere. We'll get to that in a second. But as I mentioned at the top, you give a tremendous amount philanthropically to something you call patriotic philanthropy, which is to protect and, if need be, restore great American architectural and representational artifacts, institutions. I want your thoughts right now on what you see playing out within the White House currently. A president of the United States, against all evidence, calling people up in state legislatures and asking them if they can overturn the results in their state— and upend what everyone knows was the legal verified result of this election?
1: Well, a very famous psychologist, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, said that, you know, in, when you have uh, bad situations, there are various five stages of grief, and uh, you don't get to acceptance towards the end of it. Uh, right now, to some extent, you're still in the denial phase, I suspect. But uh, the country's great strength has been shown by this. So when history is written, and it becomes clear that Joe Biden will be inaugurated on January the 20th, it'll be clear that the great democracy that we built has institutions that are so strong that they can overcome um, some uh, concerns about uh, the loss of the election that the president has. So I actually think that this is a good lesson in history and a good lesson in democracy because the truth is the majority has won and has prevailed. and, And obviously I think the president knows that. However, my point is, that those people that voted for Donald Trump, they're not gonna go away and say, well, okay, Joe Biden is president, I love him so much, I just can't wait to see him succeed. That's not gonna happen. And never in our history have we had a person who was defeated for president, who seems to be so popular that he could credibly run again. Now, Grover Cleveland pulled it off, but it took a while to come back to do it, and that was over 100 years ago. Most people in this century who have lost have gone away. Now, Teddy Roosevelt did come back and run, he didn't win. But in in your lifetime, in my lifetime, Gerald Ford lost. Nobody thought he was going to run for president again, or he flirted with it, but he didn't run. Jimmy Carter couldn't have run again, and George Herbert Walker Bush didn't run again. So generally, when you lose, you go about and build your library. I don't think Donald Trump is going to just go build his library. And what do you think the effect of that
2: will be on American political life, and particularly the Republican Party?
1: Well, my guess is that probably uh, it will freeze for a while, those people who wanted to run for president in 2024 on the Republican side, Because, you know, how are you going to run when you've got the 800-pound gorilla there? And so until Donald Trump says he's definitely not running, and I don't think he's going to say that till the very last moment, I suspect it will freeze the field a bit. So I think he's going to be a major force in American politics going forward, not just because he was president of the United States and and got 70-some million votes, but because a lot of people feel intensely loyal to him, and he likes to, uh, you know, appear in front of them. I think you'll see a lot of those rallies going forward for years.
2: And David, I don't need to tell you this either. There are those in the Trump orbit who look at the Council of Foreign Relations and view it, to put it charitably, askance, look at something like the Carlisle Group, a billion dollar private equity firm, and say that's sort of what's wrong with America early in the 21st century. A lot of powerful people sit around, talk to each other, exchange the same thoughts, go to the same places. And the rest of us get left out of that conversation. Or if we're involved in the conversations, we are not assets, we're victims. Evaluate that.
1: Well, the Council on Foreign Relations has been around for about 100 years, and I think it's done a very good job of giving people information about foreign policy. So I wouldn't in in any way say it's done anything improper. Uh, We have a very diverse membership, very diverse board membership. And so I don't think it's it's an overly elite organization. It might have been 100 years ago or 50 years ago. Not the case now. Um, you know, private equity firms can be criticized, but they've done a pretty good thing in making the economy much better than more efficient. And their investors tend to be public pension funds to a large extent who represent teachers and firemen and policemen and so forth. So I wouldn't apologize for that either. There's no doubt that there are some people that are not as successful as other people. And they feel that to some extent there are some people holding them down and they might criticize a lot, a lot of institutions. But, you know, you can't live your life just saying, well, if somebody doesn't like me, I guess I should go in a hole and not do anything. You have to live your life and do what you think is right. And if you're doing things that are ethical and illegal, I I don't think you should be apologizing for it.
2: Let me run a statistic by you and get your thoughts on it. I came across this in a recent column I read. Going back to the 2016 election, Hillary Clinton won one-sixth of the counties in the United States, meaning, of course, Donald Trump won the other five-sixths of the counties. But in the one-sixth of the counties that Hillary Clinton won resided two-thirds of America's gross domestic product. Quite obviously, the other third existed in the other five-sixths of American counties. That idea of the concentration, not just of wealth, but the wealth that generates more wealth in places that are proportionally less distributed than the rest of the country speaks to this gap between those on the Trump side or this Republican conservative side and the Democratic progressive side and the wealth side of America. What are your thoughts about that?
1: Well, it's true in any country. In any country, the large cities are where the wealth is going to be. So you can go to China and you can say, well, the poor people living in the Western part of China, they're in bad shape. The people, all the wealth is in Beijing and Shanghai and the equivalent. So it's true everywhere. That's where the great wealth has been created since the industrial revolution. It's been in the great ur- urban areas. Um, there's no doubt that democracy is better than, than uh, aristocracy or better than uh, totalitarian governments. And democracy basically means you have the most people who want somebody get what they want generally. And the fact that counties are um, voting in large numbers for, let's say, Donald Trump, but large counties with large populations in urban areas are voting for Hillary Clinton, it, it, you can't compare them They're apples and oranges. It, is it fair to say that a county that has 1,000 um, people, they should have a disproportionate, say, in the population of a county that has a million people. Of course not. And we just have a lot of counties in our country that are very sparsely populated. And do you think there's anything
2: about the digital revolution that has accelerated those obvious trends you said existed and have existed since the Industrial Revolution?
1: Yes, uh, particularly post-COVID. Um, Post-COVID, what's going to happen is there is a divide. It's a tale of two worlds, really, now. Those people that can adapt to the post-COVID world, they have high-speed internet. They can adapt. They can work uh, remotely. Those people are doing quite well in the business that I'm in private equity. While there's some challenges, we're in pretty good shape relative to, to to other people. But if you work for a food truck, you work in a small restaurant, you work in a catering company, you work in a movie theater, you're not in good shape. If you don't have the education to transform yourself, it's been a terrible situation and people are falling into this crater that COVID has created and they're not going to pull out so easily. So I think, uh, it's really going to be a worse situation for people if they don't have digital uh, capabilities. If you're in a poor home and you don't have high-speed internet, you're not going to be able to keep up with the world. And there would be those who would describe the New Deal
2: as a concentrated government response to the most difficult economic ravages of that early industrial age. I've talked to some people recently, David, who look at this and describe the things you just identified, true before the pandemic, intensified in the existence of it, and will be intensified in its aftermath, that we need another new deal. We need a large government intervention to shake things up in terms of taxation, delivery of benefits, maybe wages, the like. Your thoughts?
1: Well, whenever there's a crisis anywhere, there's always a feeling that you should do something dramatic to make a change. That was what the new deal was all about. And it, it largely worked. It had some imperfections for sure. And it had a lot of resistance at the time. But you you know that large numbers of people don't move that quickly. So you have a country of 330 million people. We're not going to go through a revolution. The most recent election basically gave us a divided government again. So it more appears the Senate goes, stays Republican. So I I just don't think that all of a sudden we're going to make these dramatic changes that quickly, but they should be changes made and they will probably more evolutionary than revolutionary. And Joe Biden Um, is not a revolutionary, he's more of an evolutionary kind of person, a person who knows how to work the system. So there'll be changes, but I don't think a New Deal, 100 days kind of thing is going to happen in the first 100 days of this administration. How well do you know President Elect Biden? I've known him for quite a while. Um, You know, he was uh, the first senator to endorse Jimmy Carter, who for whom I work in the White House. And, um, you know, I've known him, I've been in Washington for 40 plus years, and he's been in Washington for 40 plus years. So I know him uh, reasonably well.
0: And well, if, if you I mean, were to give me.
1: Go ahead. But, I'm what? not claiming I'm an intimate it is. I don't want to. Everybody in Washington is probably saying that they're an intimate of the <laughs> president elect now. And, you know, they're their best buddies. And they went to high school with them and so <laughs> forth. I'm not claiming that. I, I do know him. And uh, I've known, met him a number of occasions, for sure. Very good. That's the voice of David Rubenstein. He's our special guest. Uh, on the other side of this break, we're
2: going to talk about other things that he is involved in, including the Kennedy Center for Performing Arts. Closed down right now, uh, like so many things are in this city and across the country due to the pandemic. That, the future of arts in the United States, Capitol, and other issues with David Rubenstein, my special guest. I'm Major Garrett. Segment three of The Takeout, coming up in just a second.
0: CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
2: Welcome back. However you find this show, on great radio stations around this country, on Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, CBSN, our digital streaming platform, or you original ones on podcast platforms everywhere, thanks for joining us. David Rubenstein is our special guest. Uh, David, uh, if someone were to ask me, was there a particular perk that came with your employment at CBS? I would say, yes, there's one sensational above and beyond perk that is being able to attend the Kennedy Center Honors. something I never did in Washington, though I'd been here for many, many years until I came to work for CBS. Tell the audience a little bit about what it is, if they don't know what its current status is in the pandemic and how the Kennedy Center for Performing Arts will emerge from the pandemic sometime in
1: 2021. Kennedy Center opened in 1971 as a living memorial to President Kennedy. It was going to be the National Cultural Center after his death, the family asked, and the Congress went along with the idea of it after him. It now has, in normal times, 2,000 performances a year and roughly 2 million people a year attended. The best known part of it is the so-called Kennedy Center Honors, which was started in 1978, where in that year we honored five very distinguished people like Arthur Rubenstein or George Balanchine, Uh, Fred Astaire and so forth and from that time on every year we've honored five people typically for lifetime achievement. Uh, It occurs in December the first weekend of December it would have been uh, this past weekend but this year because of the pandemic the Kennedy Center has had to close we're working towards trying to do it if we can in May uh, in some kind of half virtual maybe half uh, live kind of performance we'll see how it works out. But it's a time where the the social elite of Washington, the political elite of Washington, president of the United States very typically, and people from all over the country come. And it's one of the highlights of the social scene in Washington, D.C. And I think it's a good way to honor our cultural uh, artists. And in your conversations, David, which I'm sure you
2: must be having right now and have had all year, what do you believe will be the post-pandemic reality for those artistic endeavors that are, at their best, widely attended by large live audiences.
1: There are over 120,000 cultural and performing arts organizations in the United States. The best known of them are the Kennedy Center, Lincoln Center, places like that. But of the smaller ones that are not known, it is estimated by some people that roughly 10% of them will go out of business. Because right now, in the performing arts area, you make your money 50% from philanthropic gifts and 50% from ticket sales, more or less, with some exceptions. And with right now there's no ticket sales because people can't gather. And therefore many of these organizations have had to lay people off, furlough people off, and, and we've had to do the same at the Kenny Center. So we're more or less shut down. We hope to reopen around April, but again, that assumes a lot of good things happen. Uh, we hope that by May we can do some type of Kenny Center honors and we'll see how it goes in the rest of the year. So it's an unfortunate situation for the country, unfortunate situation uh, for many of the people who work there and many people who take such pleasure out of seeing the performing arts.
2: There have been those who have wondered if the pandemic will exact such a toll as to erase certain things that we were used to before its arrival. Do you think there will be a, a significant gap or erasure of America's cultural sense of self well, and cultural creativity?
1: Civilization for you know, tens of thousands of years has always had some interest in performing arts. We see 29,000-year-old art on caves in in certain parts of Europe. So people have always been interested in visual arts, performing arts, and presumably that won't go away, but it'll change. There's no doubt it will change. And I think it will take a while for people to be comfortable going back to sitting next to somebody very closely in a large arena. Uh, But I suspect uh, five years from today, uh, we'll have big rock concerts again, and maybe even sooner than that. I, I think people like to be together. As a general rule, humans like to be with other humans. So while we've been in this aberration for quite some time now, almost a year, I think in the end we will revert to the mean, which is to go back to more common ways of conducting uh, human life and human existence. But it'll take a couple of years probably to get back to that.
2: Those of us who uh, live in Washington, D.C. know that just before the pandemic, you opened an outdoor pavilion type arts area. Is that something that can open sooner that because of its open air nature might be allowed to participate Or have people participate in cultural either events or performances?
1: Yes, and it is open uh, to some extent now. We've had some uh, performances there, and we've had some uh, opportunities there for some people to come in and do other things there. Because it's outdoor, there's much greater opportunity. So, yes, you're correct. As we go into the winter, it'll be a little more challenging. But as we come into the summer again, the spring, I think we will use it much more. And it has worked very well to the extent that we've been able to use it right now. But thank you for mentioning It's called The Reach. So... You've given
2: a lot of money, uh, millions and millions of dollars, to restore the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial. Uh, You purchased, I believe, the last copy of, original copy of the Magna Carta that was in private hands, gave that to the National Archives for its use and and, uh, presentation. What motivates you in this world of what has been described, I think, by you and others as patriotic philanthropy?
1: I came from very modest circumstances. I got lucky in life. And I wanted to give back to the country, made it possible for me. Somebody's last name is Rubenstein. It came from a, a family where my parents were not college or high school educated. To get to where I am, I owe this country a lot. So I wanted to give back to the country. One way I've tried to do so is to remind people of the country's history and heritage. We don't really know that much about it. And as a famous historian once said, those people that don't remember history are condemned to relive it. So we're going to repeat mistakes we made in the past that we don't know about some of these things. And my idea is that if you see the Magna Carta in person, you're more likely to know more about it because you will actually read about it before or after. While you're there, you'll hear about it. It's better than just seeing it on a computer slide. The same with the Marshall Monument or, or Mount Vernon or Lincoln Memorial. If you visit it and it's in good shape, you're inclined to learn more about it. You'll learn more about American history. Sadly, right now, uh, citizens out of 49 out of 50 states recently were unable to pass the basic citizenship test given the people who want to become citizens in this country. This is native-born Americans, couldn't pass the test, which asks things like, what are the three branches of the government? Who was the first president of the United States? So we have a long way to go because we don't teach histories very much anymore, and we certainly don't teach civics as much as we should.
2: And you know also, David, that in this conversation, what do we teach? What is our history? What is our civics presentation? There are those involved in the conversation that is reflective on the George Floyd murder and things around it that say, you know, that's part of our problem in this country. When we do get around to teaching history, there's a kind of whitewashing, and they mean that in a metaphorical and literal sense. Do you agree with that, and do you think that there is something that should be reappraised about our own understanding of our own history, whether it's the history of our presidents, the history of our institutions, how they were established, and what effect those institutions and their origins have had on the America we live in here in the 21st century?
1: Well, you're younger than me, but I don't know if you had this experience, but when I was in grade school or junior high school, you know, I would read about George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, great people, James Madison, but they didn't emphasize that they were slave owners. They did not. And and so today we realize that, for example, Thomas Jefferson had a relationship with Sally Hemings, a slave for some 40 years at, you know, was it, you know, forced or not? We don't really know. We'll never really know probably. But I do think that we are now relooking at history with a different eye to pointing out the things that went wrong or weren't appropriate at that time, not just slavery, but other things. We're learning much more. Take the women's right to vote. Um, It is amazing when you think about it, the country was created and not until the 19th amendment was passed, that women in 1920 get the right to vote. It's amazing that 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 was allowed to, to go on for so long. So yes, I think people are looking at history much better, but there's no doubt that history has been whitewashed to some extent in the past. I mean, it's just, that's inevitable. It's probably true in every country as well.
2: What do you think is the state of journalism in America? It is my belief, it's been my career's work, that that is essential to not only the preservation of, but the raucous nature of a functioning democracy.
1: I have a book coming out next year on what it means to be an American. And in the course of that, I asked the Harris Polling Corporation to survey Americans, they surveyed 2,000, And I asked them to ask, what are the most important things that make people uh, American? What's so unique about this country? What came back overwhelmingly as the first choice was the right to free speech. That was number one. More Americans thought that was the most important thing that was unique about this country, the right to free speech. And of course, the right to free speech is really the right to free press and and the kind of things that journalism stand for. So I think Americans care a lot about it. But there's no doubt that there has been some, uh, I'd say, political backlash against the press in the last number of years. And I suspect, though, that, that the, the country will survive it. Remember, it's the First Amendment. It's not the Tenth Amendment. And I do think it's very, very important that we continue to have a free press, even though uh, people don't like it sometimes when they're government. And when people write articles about me that are critical, I don't like it either. But that's you know better for society.
2: That's the voice of David Rubenstein, our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment
0: four of The Takeout in just a second. The Takeout with Major Garrett is brought to you in part by Kansas City Steaks. Visit KansasCitySteaks.com today and use code SIZZLE2020 at checkout. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with
2: Major Garrett. Welcome back. Continuing our conversation with David Rubenstein. David, uh, along the lines of what we just left off, the future of American journalism, I grew up in this industry in a small community newspaper. My first job was in Amarillo, Texas. My second job was in Las Vegas, Nevada, then Houston, Texas, before I got to Washington in 1990. So I went through, as I often say, the minor leagues of American newspaper journalism. And every one of those newspapers I mentioned is much smaller than it was when I went to work there in the mid to late 80s, even though the communities in which they serve are much larger. Community journalism in this country is dying before our very eyes. And I wonder, as you talk to those who are in the position to be philanthropically inclined, you've ever had any conversations along the lines of, is there something that should be done? Is there something that could be done from a foundation perspective to allow journalistic institutions to function in a community from a philanthropic point of view? What are your thoughts?
1: Well, first, I, I, I have in front of me my daily newspapers. I am still the only person in Washington who reads six newspapers a day and reads them by, by actually reading them, not online. Secondly, I had a chance to buy the Washington Post, and one of the regrets of my life when it was offered to me was I turned it down. Obviously, uh, Jeff Bezos is a wealthier guy mm-hmm. than I am and doing a better job, but I would have loved to own it. In hindsight, I made a mistake. Um, there's no doubt that some communities have gone to a situation where uh, foundations – Nonprofit foundations are owning local newspapers as a way to keep them alive. Uh, And that's because the newspaper business is not as profitable as it used to be. It is generally estimated that there'll be very few newspapers around uh, in 10 or 20 years, just because everything is going online. Uh, My own children, all of whom are extremely well-educated, going to great schools, they don't tend to read newspapers. They read things online and that's what people do. Um, I'm amazed that sometimes my own children tell me they get their news from LinkedIn or Facebook. I mean, I said, what about the newspapers? Now they just get it from LinkedIn or Facebook. That's- I'm not even a member of those things, so I don't even know what to own those things. But I, I, I'm amazed that that's where people are getting the news from. So the newspaper is a great thing, but which had to reinvent itself, as some have done. The New York Times, the Washington Post have done a pretty good job of reinventing themselves online, but they're unique. And I don't think there are going to be a thousand newspapers uh, in, in, in t- 10 years from now in the United States. or just the smaller ones are going. Look, Warren Buffett sold his newspapers, and he's a pretty smart guy. He is. And I wonder if you think that there is something
2: that is lost when a community of newspaper dies. That is to sense that it can't talk to itself as well as it used to. And is it lost for good or will it just morph into something different?
1: Well, to, the result is you tend to homogenize American uh, culture. You know, you have one newspaper, it might be printed in New York or Washington or Los Angeles, and they are the ones that are providing news to many local newspapers and so forth. Local newspapers aren't having local reporters People like you are not getting their start in local newspapers as much as they used to. So it's a different world. We have to recognize the world changes. It's different. Hopefully uh, there'll be local ways to get news out so that people can find out what's going on in their own community without having to, you know, go to a a, a event in person, but it's not a good situation. Generally. I wish I had a solution for it. I just don't.
2: You're well-traveled. You speak to people who are also well-traveled who look at the world and try to get some sense of the future I think it's fair to say that the Trump effect was, in one way or another, a group of people electing a president who looked at globalization and said, for a moment or two, stop. It doesn't appear that it is permanently stoppable, that technology alterations, that cooperation between governments, that economic ties can't be severed completely. And they will continue because capital will flow Labor will flow, innovation will flow in ways that it simply didn't in the earlier mid twentieth century. If there is a dominant trend line you see shaping the world we actually live in over the next ten to fifteen or twenty years, based on your conversations and experience, what would it be?
1: Well, globalization is here to, co- to stay and it's not going away. And it's been a good thing for the United States. We have five percent of the world's population, but you know a little bit more than twenty percent of the wealth of the, of the world. Why do we do that? Because we're trading with other people. We're doing many things that enable us to get products or services from elsewhere that can produce them better than we can do it in many ways. It's like trying to stop the waves. You can't stop the waves from coming in an ocean. Trying to stop globalization is a fool's errand. Um, You can have some temporary ways to improve it, but you're not going to be able to stop globalization. Our biggest challenge is that we now have a competitive uh, country economically, China, and if we don't recognize some of the things we have to do to compete with China, will be a very weak second partner to the China in the global economy. I think we can be the strong partner, but we have to do many things to recognize how to take advantage of globalization in an appropriate way. Now, the people in uh, Hillbilly Elegy and those kind of books point out that there are problems because people are left behind. People are left behind in West Virginia or some parts of Ohio or Kentucky because coal is not what it used to be and so forth. We have to do a better job of helping those people, but we couldn't, we shouldn't stop progress or try to stop the waves because some people have not been able to keep up. it just, we can't do that.
2: You mentioned China. Was President Trump mostly on the right track or not at all on the right track in confronting China with tariffs and other things that no previous president, at least in my memory, in Washington had done?
1: People run against uh, the Chinese uh, economy and, and many things Chinese have done for many years, and the Chinese more or less expected that. But President Trump did some things that went beyond just campaign rhetoric, and I think Chinese were surprised by that. They didn't really know how to react it for a while. They finally figured out that he was very serious about it, and they tried to accommodate him. Uh, I think he made some uh, progress in in recognizing the the challenges that the Chinese present for us, but I think the way he went about it was not as uh, well appreciated by the Chinese, let's say, and by some Americans as maybe would have been desirable. So um, he got the message across. I think uh, President-elect Biden is probably going to approach China a little bit differently. I suspect he'd be a little friendlier in some ways, less confrontational, except in the area of human rights. I do think that in that area, uh, President-elect Biden will probably be a bit more uh, confrontational than maybe uh, President Trump was. Do you think
2: China and the United States, as some have argued, not many, but some, are on an inevitable collision course, not just economically, but militarily?
1: Well, Graham Allison, in his famous book, The Thucydides Trap, basically said, if you study 20 times throughout history where a dominant civilization economy was approached by somebody that's now coming up, in 17 out of the 20, more or less, they had some military confrontation. So it's not inevitable. I don't think we'll have a military confrontation, but you have to recognize it's very rarely, in fact, never the case, that the two dominant economies in the world at any time said, hey, we love each other, let's just do things that everybody uh, else doesn't benefit from, but the two of us benefit. There's always rivalry. So what we're doing now is we have a rivalry that's been going on for thousands of years between the two dominant economies. They just now are using different tools to compete with each other. And some of our allies are caught in between that, South Korea and Japan. Yes, I mean, uh, the United States was the dominant economy in Asia, even though you know, many people don't realize we're a Pacific nation we are, uh, for a long time. And uh, people uh, thought that the enemy in the 1970s Uh, in 1980s was Japan. It turns out that's not the case. Uh, They weren't the enemy, but they were the competitor. Uh, China is the dominant economy now, and people in Japan and South Korea, uh, they do more trading with China than they do with the United States, so they have to be careful. They're walking a very fine line. Uh, Many countries in Asia would like the United States to play a bigger role to confront China, but we have receded a bit from that, and I think the TPP, when that went away, uh, that was a big step backward for the United States.
2: Trans-Pacific Partnership, that last TPP reference. That's the voice of David Rubenstein, our special guest for our radio audience. We have to say farewell podcast. And on CBSN, stay with us for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you on the Takeout next week.
0: CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
2: Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. You know, this is the kind of fun and games part of our conversation. David Rubenstein has been our special guest. Uh, David, we have three threshold questions. This show is almost four years old, and every single one of our guests has taken on these three questions with some degree of relish. I hope you will as well. So in no particular order, and I'm really fascinated by the answers to come, uh, the most influential book in your life your all-time or one of your all-time favorite movies, and if you're going to indulge yourself musically, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to?
1: Well, going back uh, to the music, I I like classical music, Tchaikovsky, Chopin, Beethoven. I I like that. As a chairman of the Kennedy Center, that's probably not a surprise. But I also like popular music. Uh, Paul Simon, uh, Frank Sinatra, Barbra Streisand um, are also popular musicians that I, I, like enjoy a great deal as well. Um, in terms of, uh, uh, the most, the most important book, I would say that the most important book, if somebody's on an island, the one book that they probably should have, uh, is the Bible because it just explains humanity in such an incredibly interesting way. It has so many, uh, lessons in there. And it's a book that just is, I think the most important and influential book in Western society. So I would say that would be the book, uh, that I would recommend. And the third question was uh, All
2: time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies?
1: Well, I guess it would be uh, Exodus, um, which is a story of uh, Israel. Uh, it was one of my favorite movies. Uh, in terms it's of- also a great book. It is a great book by Leon Eurus, a graduate of yes. high school in Baltimore. And I would say uh, a book, a movie that I enjoyed when I was young was uh, Around the World in 80 Days. You're too young to remember that, but that was a great book, a, book, a great movie based on a book by Jules Verne. And then Mm -hmm. the funniest movie I've ever seen is it's a mad, 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 mad world. Um, I really enjoyed that book, um, that movie. And uh, those would be some of the movies I would make. That would be a madcap
2: adventure comedy, mad, 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 mad world. Um, It's often observed, you mentioned the Bible, that uh, in uh, 18th century America, children who did not have uh, access to public education typically were advised to read two things, the Bible and Shakespeare. And that's how they became educated in this country.
1: Yes. Shakespeare, interestingly, uh, there's a great book out now by James Shapiro on how Shakespeare influenced American history. And just to uh, recommend it I, to people, I hope they'll read it. I interviewed him recently on another context. But just think about this. Lincoln's assassination was heavily involved with Shakespeare. Lincoln had loved Shakespeare. He, he knew Shakespeare better than virtually any American because he memorized the pieces. He would bore his friends by reciting Shakespeare all the time. And then who was a Shakespearean actor who played Brutus in um, in the Julius Caesar play? That was John Wilkes Booth. And there are some people who would say that he was reenacting uh, that play when he decided to kill, John, to kill uh, Abraham Lincoln. And when
2: you think about the Kennedy Center, when, the first time I went, I believe, yes, I know for a fact because I've never forgotten it, Led Zeppelin was a Kennedy Center honoree. And I am a huge Led Zeppelin fan. I consider it the most important rock and roll band of all time and the most influential going forward. And I remember seeing the looks on the faces of some of the people sitting around me, <laughs> and they were a bit jarred, David. Because <laughs> some actually got up and walked out. Because uh, what? has there has there been historically a tension within the Kennedy Center honors in this mix between established and popular and oh. How, how it's rendered for the audience that attends. Okay.
1: Well, what you're referring to is this. There were a lot of um, bright lights going off and little, very loud music in mm-hmm. the Led Zeppelin piece. And some people who are a little older just felt it was a little bit too jarring for them. They weren't protesting. They just thought... Oh, no, no. I, wasn't, I didn't mean to suggest okay. they were protesting. Okay. Um, Led Zeppelin was a complicated group because the three remaining people didn't really talk to each other too much. No, they didn't. So... Uh, <laughs> They agreed that they would do it, but they said, "Look, we're not going you know, we're not best buddies anymore." And so it was uh, something a little bit challenging, but we got through it, and it was it was it was well done. And the idea that
2: it has become a bit more accessible in terms of those who are awarded and the presentation itself—it's gotten a little hipper in the last ten years, true?
1: Well, yes. I mean, uh, when I became the chairman about ten years ago, when I went back and looked at it, it turned out that about seventy percent, seventy-five percent of the honorees have been male, and about twenty. are female, and that a large, large percentage were white, and a large, large percentage were, let's say, older. Um, We haven't completely eliminated that as a performing arts uh, for for, for lifetime achievement, but we have had some younger people. We've had some hip-hop people. We honored LL Cool J, for example. Uh, We've tried to make it a little hipper in some ways, and we've tried to uh, uh, have much more diversity uh, in the uh, selections uh, than before.
2: And it would... uh remiss of me not to note, as people who are listening to this probably have said, Major, why don't you just acknowledge the obvious? Uh, CBS is a partner of the Kennedy Center. Uh, that's going to continue, correct?
1: Yes. We had a contract that I executed with uh, the pre- with CBS uh, a number of years ago. It's about a 10-year contract. I think we're probably in the year uh, three or four of it. So we've got a, quite a way to, get, way to go, and we're quite happy with it. Uh, CBS has broadcasted from the very beginning in 1978. And again, uh, sometime 2021, possibly May, we might see it, uh, the Kennedy Center Honors? Our plan is to have something in May, and then we'll have another one in December, we hope, if everything works out. So we would do two if everything worked out in in 2021. But, uh, you know, obviously planning is going forward, but we'll have to see what works out because of the virus. And do you
2: imagine there would be any kind of live in-person inside performance at the Kennedy Center in 2021
1: before that? In April, we're trying to open up again. Okay. We'll see whether we can do that, but that's not that far before May. And May, we hope that the honors will be somewhat in person and somewhat virtual.
2: Excellent. David Rubenstein, it's been a great pleasure and an honor. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks a lot. see you you next week on The Takeout.
0: The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and
2: ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go... Tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com/survey